Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. War, uh. Anyway, that's our one and only super producer, Mr. Max <laughs> Williams. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, uh, I'm no, it's, but it's sort of like war, ew, gross. <laughs> what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. I mean, it's good for some things, depending on which side of it you're on. Um, it has been in the past uh, and continues to be used as a tool of international affairs, uh, a tool of not diplomacy. It's the opposite of diplomacy. That's the thing you try before you get into war. But it has been used as a way to make moves uh, geopolitically. That's sort of what we think of war as typically, right, Ben? Yeah, that's right, Noel. Uh, we know that, unfortunately, as catchy as the war song is, it's not entirely accurate. War drives a lot of medical innovation, a lot of scientific innovation. It is a violent, ugly thing, but it has become an inherent part of geopolitics and has been since ancient days. But today, I love you're bringing up diplomacy. Today, we decided off air to step into 2022 with optimism. And this is why we wanted to bring this story to you. War is such a dangerous, dangerous, tragic thing. It shouldn't surprise us that once upon a time, a bunch of countries got together and said, okay, guys, enough. No more war. We're going to stop all wars um, by signing uh, an agreement, by signing mm -hmm. some paper. That'll stop. Yep. Them. It's sort of like the equivalent of uh, let's end racism by doing a change.org petition. Mm, yeah, unfortunately. I mean, I hate to be a, a, a negative Nancy or Noel Brown here, I guess, but uh, it, it does feel a little bit aspirational, which mm. I think we can all applaud, but it also yeah. feels a little bit laughable because, as we know, a lot of these things are pretty non-binding and uh, they do tend to have plenty of loopholes that folks can just dive right through with very little precision needed. Yeah, exactly. And we also know that, you know, I, I think a great comparison would be the idea of saying, OK, we're going to eradicate a disease by everyone signing a piece of paper that says you're not going to get it. That's mm -hmm. how we're going to get rid of HIV or something like that. Like it's the intentions can be good, but the intentions alone. Well, spoiler alert. Tell us what you think after the episode. What we're talking about today is something called the Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928. The idea that we could, as a species, as civilizations, just stop war by saying it's illegal. So just this, wish it away. Yeah, just wish it away, guys. <laughs> wish harder. Uh, you're not, your vision board's not uh, visionary enough. That's the problem. So, they, uh, so we've got to start first by saying how this how this came about. 
it starts with a lot of context. Basically, the argument made to outlaw war in 1928 came about because before then, People just accepted that war was a, quote, legitimate interest of national policy. And that's from a book called The Internationalist. That's right, by two uh, very smart Yale Law School professors, Una A. Hathaway and Scott J. Shapiro. There was an incident in 1603 when a Dutch trader uh, attacked and ransacked a Portuguese ship outside of Singapore. And because of that point that you just made, Ben, about the idea of war being a, quote, legitimate instrument of national policy, there was a a dude named Grotius, um, who was a legal scholar, who basically justified this encounter, um, which ultimately you could really just say was an act of looting uh, Mm -hmm. and ransacking with no international policy involved one way or the other. But uh, this guy Grotius made this legal justification of essentially a Dutch pirate ship (laughs) seizing, you know, Portuguese goods completely unlawfully um, as an act of war um, in his book On the Laws of War and Peace that came out in 1625. And that is what Hathaway and Shapiro say became the textbook of the laws of war uh, and based on completely, in their opinion, spurious kind of foundations, very shaky ground. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Not to be confused with the absolute banger, The Art of War by Sun Tzu, uh, popular right. uh, around the world nowadays. But yeah, Grotius is is interesting because he essentially says any kind of war of aggression is legal so long as the aggressors provide some sort of justification. And even if those justifications turn out to be BS, straight malarkey, whomever wins the war has a right to keep whatever they got out of it, whether right. that's like land or resources. That's right. They make the whole might makes right argument saying that possession is not nine-tenths of the law, but in fact, ten-tenths of the law. Ten-tenths. And we even know that whole the whole nine-tenths thing doesn't really hold up even as much as people wish it would. But yeah, it's pretty sketchy stuff. And essentially, the justification could be something as simple as, I just wanted to have that loot. It just just seemed like it should be, you know, our loot. Why shouldn't we have that loot? I mean, I'm sure they did a better job than that, but it's not much more um, complex than just kind of trumping up some kind of BS uh, reason that you attacked a foreign power and Mm -hmm. then you'd be you'd be off scot free. Yeah. Make it a war of defense. That's one of the best moves. That's one of the most common justifications you see. Like we had to attack these people because they were actually aggressive toward us. Your mileage may vary depending on what part of the world you live in, but that's that's a very common um, a common rationale. So this doesn't sound like much of a, a good idea or even much of a legal justification, but it did importantly put a couple of a couple of handcuffs on things nations could do. One, it said that, you know, if you're a nation, you can't go to war to recapture stuff you lost in a previous conflict because you lost and now it is lawful for the person, the nation that beat you to own this. Uh, Secondly, nations can't just jump in someone else's war. They cannot change the terms on which they traded with belligerents. This meant, in effect, that other nations were obligated to look away. Like if the um, peaceful religious uh, nation state of Max Williams is embroiled in a coastal battle with the uh, expanding empire of the Brownians, then me over here in Ben Bolenstan cannot cannot intercede. You guys just have to work it out yourself according to Grotius. Otherwise, he said, you know, you're just you're just killing people. You're just spreading chaos. We need to have laws for war, which sounds so contradictory. It does sound completely contradictory. And there is a really wonderful New Yorker article called What Happens When War is Outlawed by Louis Menand that was published on September 11th of 2017. Uh, It has a really great little tagline. Did a largely forgotten peace pact transform the world we live in? And we're going to unpack that today. Unpacked that today. Uh, Never mind. Uh, Anyhow, there is a point in the article where he brings up um, 
the Mexican-American War, for example, uh, that began in 1846, which you could, in the same way that you could view that Portuguese-Dutch uh, ship encounter, um, it was just a simple land grab, you know? It was essentially just the Americans uh, wanting to take what Mexico had and making a justification for it, saying it was a matter of unpaid debts, Right. Which wasn't yeah. really what it was about at all. It was just kind of a reason that allowed them to fit this act of imperialism, essentially, into the framework of a legal conflict. Right. Now we are somehow fighting for justice, right? Pay us what you owe us. Uh, and you'll see this also in other wars throughout history. Uh, sometimes a would-be aggressor will request a huge amount of money knowing that the other party can't pay it back, meaning that there will definitely be a conflict on the horizon. This this is, again, like you said, according to Hathaway and Shapiro, Grotius's law of war explains why people generally thought this would be illegal behavior in the current system. And this is what they meant, this is what Hathaway and Shapiro mean when they refer to the old world order, which set a cartoonishly low bar for going to war. This was super convenient when you were an imperial power expanding your empire. But then once you and other imperial powers turned against each other, things got a lot more tricky. Like the first world war turned into, went from a regional conflict almost overnight to this to pandemonium, bloody pandemonium. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Ben, my favorite spring cleaning takeaway is that post-clean clarity that you get where you're like, wow, how have I been living like this? Yeah, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless and Mint Mobile has phone plans for just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Y'all, it's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. And use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The following is a high-five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to Burger Yippee. Would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! <laughs> I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your high five moment today? Only at highfivecasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. I love that you say cartoonishly, Ben. Um, I think it really, really applies in this particular situation because remember in uh, Looney Tunes, there's, uh, I think he says it multiple times, but Bugs Bunny is in some way slighted by some aggressor. And then he says, I hope you know, or I hope you understand that this means war. Uh, And the implication there is all it takes is for someone to just like slight you or humiliate you in some small way, and that there in and of itself is a a justification for all-out scorched earth kind of behavior. Yeah, it's very... It's very much a matter of convenience for a lot of people here, but after after the First World War, folks were able to look around, policymakers, various genres, they uh, made eye contact with each other, and they said, you know, this isn't really working for anybody, so maybe we should try something different. Uh, This is where 
the Kellogg brand pact comes in. There were all these post-war peace movements in France and in the U.S., for instance, uh, that advocated for straight-up international disarmament. This is a radical idea, and it's a very it's a very difficult idea because disarmament only works if everybody does it right. And, right. and and so the world is in a standoff, just like in a Western film, where every country is telling every other country to put their gun down first. Uh, it's it's tricky, but people were making progress. There were conferences in D.C. in 1921. Uh, there were other things where like the U.S. would start cooperating more with the League of Nations and the World Court. Which was a new thing in and of itself, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And also the World Court. I mean, these things did not exist, and these all came as a direct response to how absolutely devastating and horrible for just about everybody World War I was, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a great Thought Co. article by Robert Longley called The Kellogg-Briand Pact War Outlawed, which which gives us a sense of— the problem, and it gives us a sense of what what people are trying to do, even if it's utopian, even if it is, uh, as one Max Williams said, uh, what was it, blindly optimistic, Max? Uh, I think I said blindly optimistic, which is a great way to start the new year because you're just so optimistic before all of it just goes to utter absolute sh- <sighs> and then I pointed out that I might just be a little too nihilistic in 2022 already. Hey man, <laughs> nihilism and optimism, they don't have to be mutually exclusive. Or yeah. maybe they do. I don't know. Well, you could be optimistically nihilistic, right? That's true. That's a very good point. The <laughs> optimistic like, Nothing nihilist. matters. I'm having a great day. <laughs> I'm having a great day. No, and, and well, also you can be optimistic about the idea that everything is ultimately a great big nothing. Yeah. Uh, so optimistic nihilism. I just had to verify this quote views the belief that there is no underlying meaning to life from a perspective of hope. (laughs) The optimistic nihilist looks at a world lacking meaning and purpose and says, Hey, this is an opportunity to create my own meaning, my own purpose. Wow. Oh my God. I think that might be a little bit of each of us. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Got to make your own kind of music, you know? There we go. Yeah, you got to be the change. Uh, I think that was uh, from The Simpsons or Gandhi. So these folks back in the 1920s, they say, okay, the old system, the old world order hinged on this very low bar of what makes war legal. And so the way we replace this is not making more new rules exactly, but it is to outlaw the concept of war itself. Uh, And there's this interesting, again, this is from the book, The Internationalist. There's this interesting comparison the authors make where they note something in the work of Salmon Levinson. And Levinson talks about dueling. You know, now, at least in the U.S., we we can't resolve things with dueling. But back in the day, as anyone who's seen Hamilton knows, dueling was, was a way for people to resolve conflicts. And he said, look, people kept trying to change dueling, to make all these weird rules, to make it seem cooler or more civilized. But people were still dueling, and then that means they were still killing each other. Yeah, but instead of, like, outlawing dueling, like, as a as a thing, like, okay, well, if you're going to duel, you're going to duel, but just know that whoever gets killed, uh, that, that person has now been a victim of a murder that you have done, uh, as opposed <laughs> right. to it having this like this uh, inherent amnesty, right? If you kill someone in a duel, that's fair play, and you get to walk away. Um, you know, a Wild West rules even. I mean, that was later, but like dueling was, that's still a form of dueling to solve a problem. The understanding was that if you killed someone in a duel, it was a fair fight, and you could walk away from that. And then the undertakers would just come out and drag that poor sap away. But what they did was they removed the amnesty, right? Yeah, they did. They said, yeah, well, let's just call it murder as murder. You know what I mean? We have the benefit of retrospect. So it does sound ridiculous for us to look back and say, oh, yeah, murder was fine for a long time if it was a duel, because a modern version of that would be like, oh, yeah, you know, hitting someone with your car is fine as long as it's a car fight. Otherwise, it's an accident and you've got to pay insurance. You're like, oh, no, right. sorry, it was, it was a car fight. It was on purpose. I hate that guy in the Honda Odyssey. 
Oh, do you think they had dueling insurance back in the day? When, when did insurance even start to be a thing? Uh, uh, that would be as boring yeah. a topic as that would no, that sounds on the surface. I think it would be actually very interesting. Yeah, yeah, it would be, and it would be uh, in no small part. Uh, I, I think it'd be a two-parter episode, honestly, because I had looked into this idea, and it goes back to I want to say the 1700s. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing off the top of my head here. I I have the quickest of Google searches for us. Give it to us, Max. The first insurance company in the U.S. dates back to the colonial days, the Philadelphia Contribution Ship. Okay, that's, that's, uh, yeah. that's not an easy one. And guess who co-founded it? Uh, Alexander Hamilton. Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin. Dang it! <laughs> he's he just the, the kind of ideas. kind of hustle he'd be into. Oh, one hundred percent! It's such a racket, and it's one of it's the kind of rackets that only continues to exist because of its like legacy and it being sort of like this this need that maybe was never there before being created. Obviously, health insurance obviously is its own thing. But what what would you do? Maybe you, maybe that would just be like you would you know dueling insurance would be just a life insurance policy. You know that would kick, kick yeah. in, in in case you were killed in a duel. Let's let's do it. Let's do a history of insurance uh, podcast because it'll take us to a very interesting place in the modern day. Um, I agree. And the, the, the idea, I think it's a wonderful idea. Noel. The idea of insurance isn't just, um, doesn't just refer to the privatized industry that the U S labors under today. Insurance is also a kind of safety net in general. And that's why France France had a terrible time during World War One. They wanted the insurance of international alliances. They mm-hmm. they were like Germany is still giving off a bad vibe, and it turns out you know that that bad vibe would later prove to be correct. At least <laughs> yes, on France's part, it sure would. It sure would. That bad vibe uh, definitely paid uh, bad dividends uh, in the form of World War Two and and the reign of Hitler and all of the horrible horrible things that he did. Um, so good on you, France, for clocking that vibe. Here's the thing. Let's talk about the pact in particular. We've got this climate of isolationism. You know, let's not, you know, mess with foreign wars. Let's not get embroiled. It's just too much. It causes too much mutually assured destruction. So let's um, follow this dueling idea. We obviously can't outlaw war outright, but what we can do is remove the amnesty, remove that legal protection. You know, if you um, hijack a foreign ship uh, and pillage it, that is no longer something that you are protected for. You will be tried uh, and treated as a criminal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because you shouldn't have killed people. No. Nope. <laughs> I don't know for why. For their stuff. That was such a hot take at the time. You shouldn't kill people, maybe. Let's work it out. This is where we meet the guys behind the name of the pact. The French Minister of Foreign Affairs, Aristide Briand, and the American Secretary of State, Frank Kellogg, Funny story, initially, Kellogg, when he got pitched this idea by Briand, he thought, ah, I don't think this is going to happen. I mean, obviously, he said, I, I don't think the U.S. is going to go to war with France, so there's no point in us promising not to, which is just side note here. That's a really shady thing to say. Like, why do we need to? Come on, buddy. Uh, and he mm-hmm, said, mm-hmm. he said, what I really think is happening here is that this proposal has an ulterior motive. I believe that you, Briand, are trying to make the U.S. commit to intervening on France's behalf in any case of an attack by Germany. And then, well, I mean, that's true. Uh, And there was some back and forth and the public pressure. Again, the pro-peace movements uh, were huge in the U.S. and France. And eventually... Something happened. Kellogg thought, gave it a think, and he comes back to Briand and he says, you know what, man? That sounds great, honestly. Why, why shouldn't we renounce war? But it shouldn't just be between us, he says. We should make the treaty multilateral. We should have everybody sign it. And then everyone would just stop waging war. Yeah, and Kellogg really thought that he was pulling a fast one on his <laughs> uh, his counterpart over there um, in in the land of France. Uh, because back to that New Yorker article, um, he knew that France had uh, a lot of mutual defense treaties with other European states. And it would be really, really difficult for them to honor all of those treaties if France agreed that they would renounce war altogether. 
So he thought that he was kind of putting one over on the guy. But because of the way that the agreement was ultimately worded, there was enough latitude in it that made it seem like a smart political move for Briand and his, um, you know, contemporaries to sign. Um, And what we got was the General Treaty for the Renunciation of War, known as the Paris Peace Pact, because that's where it was signed, or the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody is still trying to recover from World War I. The public in general is kind of sick of war. Many people have now seen the horrors of conflict firsthand. So there's public support behind this. The participants, when they're creating this agreement in Paris, they start baking in some exceptions from the very jump, from day one. First, they said, okay, hashtag not all wars. We're going to ban wars of aggression, but we cannot ban acts of self-defense because this means, you know, people have to be able to protect their populace and their resources and their borders and so on. And so the final version of the agreement had just two clauses everybody agreed on. Uh, I think we can each do one here. All signatory nations have outlawed war as an instrument of national policy. Yep. And all signatory nations agreed to settle their disputes only by peaceful means. Thumb war. Um, yeah, thumb war. I don't know. That, that, I've seen those get pretty violent. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you gotta, you know, it's about yeah. the leverage on the wrist. You know, people are messed up about that game. I know. I, whenever I do a thumb war, I always turn my hat backwards, let people know that I mean business. These sound great, don't they? Sure. In, in, in kind of a utopia, sky blue, you know, silver lining playbooks kind of way. Uh, it really sounds nice. It also sounds a little, a little too optimistic if we're being nihilistic about it. <sighs> yeah, this is one of those things where it's great and it, it's, it's great to say, and it feels good to tell other people this, but what do you do when the rubber hits the road? How do you enforce this? Fifteen nations originally signed the agreement, uh, and there were a lot of heavy hitters, and then eventually another 47 nations followed. This meant that by, 19, by, by 1929 or so, the majority of all the governments in the world had signed up for this and said, yeah, we're over war. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense from an optics standpoint, you know, to, to use a kind of political term. I mean, it was politically smart. That's why all these other nations signed on, because it kind of it, it, it presented this kind of like codified optimism that the citizens of the the world could get behind. Because like you said, there was total uh, fear and paranoia and war fatigue. And this is just the kind of legislation that makes you think that the uh, powers that be really do have your best interest in mind. Yeah, it's, it's also, to that point about optics, it's also very difficult uh, once a majority consensus is achieved, it's incredibly difficult to be the one country that said, fuck you guys, war is awesome. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to sign up for that. You know what I mean? Uh, so, <laughs> so people are feeling this international pressure. And we don't know whether or not this is due to the Kellogg-Briand Pact. But there was a relative period of peace for about four years after signing And it first got tested, the pact, that is, in 1931, when Japan invaded and occupied Manchuria in something called the Mukden Incident, which started September 18th, 1931. There's a lieutenant in the Kwangtung Army, part of the Imperial Japanese Army, who detonates a little bit of dynamite on a railway near Mukden. The explosion doesn't even cause that much damage, but it does give the Japanese army the opportunity to blame this on Chinese dissidents and justify a crackdown, an invasion. Japan had signed a pact. The U.S. and the League of Nations, still, they just didn't bother to take any action to enforce it. Okay, so at the time, the U.S. was absolutely being eaten alive by the Great Depression. So they had, you know, a lot of stuff on their minds. 
their collective mind. Um, other nations in the league also had their own issues to deal with. Um, so they did not want to spend their money uh, to help another country like China achieve independence. They're like, you know, we support you and everything, you know, uh, spiritually, but not morally, yeah, Morally, totally on the right side of history here. But yeah, we don't have any scratch to spare you. Um, so after Japan's kind of weird subterfuge war was sort of, uh, you know, illuminated in 1932, that's when Japan went into like full lockdown, uh, international lockdown in terms of isolating themselves from the rest of the world. That ended with them pulling out of the league in 1933. Yeah, and this played a role in uh, the growing perception of people across the planet that the League of Nations was a nice idea but was not powerful enough to do the things it wanted to do, which ultimately, you know, would lead to the United Nations. Which, as we know, a lot of these UN kind of, um, what do you call them? Uh, Not declarations, um, resolutions, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, They are not binding. It's sort of like this, we agree conceptually to do this stuff, and we're going to talk about it and write it down. But when, you know, like you said earlier, the rubber hits the road or push comes to shove or any other uh, cliches, there's nothing holding us to these. We're going to do what we got to do. It's the same as, like, outlawing war. Yeah, it sounds like like a really nice idea. But war isn't just a tool. It's a thing that happens between people. When they get pushed to the extreme and there's really no way around it. You know, you can't just remove the fight from the dog that is man. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumber5Casino.com. High Five Casino. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So this reminds me of something called the broken window theory, which you guys may have heard of. And the broken window theory is a sociological concept that applies in micro and macrocosms, it's it's the idea that um, there's a sort of domino effect. Like people in a dirty alley will be more likely to litter than they would in a clean place. And oh. that people in this, this is where I'm going with this. Like if one person is breaking the agreement, the treaty, the pact, then it makes it so much easier for other people people or other countries rather to subsequently uh, violate the agreement because everybody else is doing it. Why can't we? So (laughs) pretty much right after the 1931 Japanese invasion of Manchuria, we see Italy invade Ethiopia, the Spanish civil war, Japan invades China. Germany is after Poland. The Soviet union invades Finland. Germany invades. Sausage war. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Just so in the sausage war episode, do check that out. It is uh, grizzly and not as, not as it's not the food fight. It sounds like it is a Mm. food fight. Not fun at all. Well, it's a different, it's not like a food fight, like in like, you know, uh, a high school rom-com. It's a fight around food because people are starving and will slash throats to get food. But check it out. 
fun, fun, fun little romp uh, mm-hmm. if you haven't already. And so eventually, as Germany invades multiple European nations and Japan attacks the United States, a new world war engulfs the planet. World War II. This whoops results in, yes, more than 60 million people dying, the deployment of atomic weaponry. Uh, nobody was really talking about the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Nobody was like, mm, hey, hey, though, hey, guys, we signed the thing. Everybody has a copy at their house. I think that's what we've been both saying this whole time is like, it's nice to kumbaya and drum circle around the campfire with our, you know, brethren uh, of the world. But when it all comes down to it, war is just kind of part of who uh, we are as human beings. And when threatened, you're going to fight back, despite whatever you've agreed to on paper, especially when it's kind of toothless and there's really no way to enforce it at all. Yeah, they didn't define self-defense. I think that's one of the biggest errors there. So these countries were invading other countries and they were saying, whoa, whoa, we're defending ourselves. Sort of similar to the way you can hear uh, the current government of Russia saying that their actions in Ukraine are defense measures due to the encroachment of NATO. Uh, Yeah, yep, yep. Now, this is not to say that there weren't like positive things about this. We're we're sort of ragging on it a little bit. There were things that it defined that needed to be defined or that sort of flipped the definition. You know, we we were talking about from the beginning where the definition of war was so like vague and easy to justify. And and this, if, if, if nothing else that was really, really lasting, there's a couple other things that were lasting, but I think the most important thing is it, it kind of held people to account where it's like, if you're going to declare war and you are found to be the aggressor and did so under false pretenses or under like fully self-serving pretenses, you can be tried as a war criminal, you know, mm-hmm. for, I believe it's called crimes against peace. Isn't that right? Yeah, I believe that's correct. In international law, it's planning or waging a war of aggression. Uh, Then there's also the related but distinct crimes against humanity. Yeah, this is such a noble, beautiful idea. And it's a shame that even, even the people who wrote the book examining this, Hathaway and Shapiro, say that the kellogg briand Pact is today regarded often as historically insignificant because it had no enforcement mechanism, no binding consequences. It reads more of like, um, I mean, this sounds brutal, but it reads kind of like a promise to be good. Mm -hmm. Like the way you would have to, uh, you know, make the Boy Scout pledge or something. Uh, There weren't any real consequences for not being brave, thrifty, clean, and reverent, and so on. Yeah, or to obey obey the law of the pack. That's the part that I remember. Um, (laughs) I was just a cub scout. I think that's Um, Richard Kipling. No, no, it's it's to to do unto, to help other people and to I I to oh, do my the duty laws. to yeah, yeah and to and to obey the law of the pack. I'm I was, with you, Noel. Yeah, you, you got me. As someone who only got through Cub Scouts and went to like one Boy Scout uh, meeting and quit, dude, I'm with you, buddy. Same. Buddy. I never yeah, got so I think to ben, Cub Scouts. You just they they, they fast tracked you right to Eagle, didn't they? Because you were just <laughs> yeah, like right. you were like he was an eight year old Eagle Scout, hundred percent. But here's the thing. You're right, Ben. It, it was toothless. It was impossible to uh, enforce. It did read like a sort of like zhuzhed up golden rule. But it actually is still around to this day and is the heart or the core of what we now uh, know as the UN Charter. And it does, you know, sometimes uh, these, you know, making a stance, if only conceptually, matters. It is sort of like this ideal uh, that we set and that we can look to. The idea of world peace, it's sort of a cliche, you know, because we know that's very, very difficult. It's one of those things that you use your genie wish on. But then also, that could be one of those monkey's paw situations, could it? Because world peace could mean that just like literally it's impossible, so everyone just dies. Right. Yeah. Or it could be a situation uh, like you see in Serenity, the film. No spoilers, but check it out. If you haven't seen it, it's worth the ride. Yeah. So there is something else you have to throw in here. And you may have heard this said on other shows. You may have read this in other um, works of academia and so on. But you will often hear people describe the current age as the most peaceful time in human history. There's a matter of debate over how true that may actually be. But the fact of the matter is, since 1945, nations have gone to war against other nations 
a lot less often. And when they have, most of the rest of the countries across the world have said, ah, this is not legit and we mm-hmm. need to sanction you or punish you somehow. And it's it's strange because historians are still kind of, I would say sussing out exactly what led to this drop in international war. I don't know. I mean, is it is it sort of the fear of mutually assured destruction? Is it sort of like playing by international kind of rules? It's hard to say. But we do know that not since the Russian seizure of Crimea uh, in 2014 has there been uh, an example of a nation holding on to a territory that it just kind of land grabbed or that it like sort of went after just with imperialistic kind of goals and not, you know, as uh, self-defense. So something changed. Yeah. I mean, you'll also, this is where you'll hear phrases like Pax Americana, like post-World War II U.S. becoming the global superpower. And America is kind of the world's police officer. And they're, you know, keeping an American perspective of peace just because no other country really had the military or economic ability to challenge it for the driver's seat. But the rest of the world started to catch up and more and more students of international affairs were predicting by the 1970s or so that we would see a surge in armed conflicts across the world. And when that didn't happen, people started saying, well, maybe it's because Nuclear weapons changed human civilization. Mutually assured right. destruction, maybe. Exactly. That, yeah, that's what I was saying, getting at as well. And, and just to backtrack ever so slightly, the, the Russian seizure of Crimea in 2014 was one of a very few, a small handful of cases uh, of, of that sort of went against this rule that we're talking about or this new normal, um, the idea that it's just not a smart move to go after other nations uh, and try to grab their land. Um, it really does require a few more layers of like checking the boxes and making sure, is this in fact a legitimate conflict or are we just being greedy and trying to take something that we believe should be ours? Because mm-hmm, we want it. We want it. It's our precious, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, it that's, is. That's, uh, I, that's, I, I always think of Gollum when I think of Putin and Crimea. Is it fair? No. Is it funny to me? Yeah, kind of. You know. He's uh, a little bit of a Gollum-esque figure. He's, he's, kinda, he's well, a, little, a little more muscular, uh, but he's got, the, he's got the bald thing going for him. That's a little funny. And so if we keep tracing the evolution of war and peace here, we know that historically democracies seem pretty hesitant to go to war with other democracies. There's also a strong argument that international trade has made countries much more interconnected and it's made war less viable, less attractive. Like, why am I, am am I really going to go bomb the country where like the majority of factories that make the majority of stuff I buy are located? That's kind of an own goal, isn't it? So people have stopped doing that as much. Exactly uh, right. At least, well, here's the question. At least they've stopped doing it so much for now because no one can reliably predict whether or when a large-scale conflict, a World War III, will spark up again. And, you know, Lest we look like we are three American residents or three U.S. residents uh, casting aspersions upon our global neighbors, uh, we have to admit the U.S. is not immune to these things at all. You'll see a lot of uh, conflicts that the U.S. engages in uh, phrased as wars of defense of some sort. And Max, you had a really good point about just how important language matters uh, when talking about this and how what we've talked about in today's episode has kind of shifted the way the U.S. um, has sort of like titled some of these departments, right? Oh, yeah. Like, you know, if you listen to like historical stuff about like Civil War and stuff like that, they're like the Secretary of War, the Secretary of War. And it's like, wait, 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 we don't have a Secretary of War. (laughs) Like 1947, they're just like, yeah, we don't go to wars anymore. We have defense, Secretary of Defense, you know, one of the most mm-hmm. posi- like powerful positions in oh, the government. Right. Yeah, it's like, oh, no, 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 no. Anytime we have to use like our military, it is to defend Americans and freedom and stuff. It's like a little scary when you think about it that way. So, I mean, whether you <laughs> yeah. can tra- trace it directly back to the uh, the Paris Peace Pact or the Kellogg-Briand Pact, 
it definitely had an influence, especially mm-hmm. because it it is to this day kind of the foundation of the um, the UN you know charter. So, and again, we know the UN can be pretty toothless too, but it does sort of set a standard, an aspirational standard of how we would hope that we would um, you know kind of get along with other nations uh, in the world, at least the ones that are like member nations. And it, it paves the way too for. Uh, large international organizations, stuff like NATO, stuff like the um, Organization of American States, uh, and so on. Like These are groups of countries that have allied together with the goal being that they will provide common defense. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is something really important to a lot of maybe smaller countries with smaller militaries. And that kind of interconnectedness that Kellogg-Briand proposed is with us today, right now. And, and there's a great example for mental floss. Like, as you are hearing this, if you are in the U.S., there are 67 countries that the U.S. has promised to back up in a, in a fight, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't need to list them all, but there's certainly some ones that I wouldn't have thought uh, necessarily would be in play. South Korea, Pakistan, Israel, obviously, but like Argentina, Barbados, the Bahamas, uh, Colombia, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Italy, Latvia. I mean, it, you know, some of these make sense and like kind of track based on what we know about like our most obvious alliances, um, but some of them are a little unusual. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I got to point this one out right here. Um, go for it. If Iceland gets in a war, we're going to go fight with them. But Greenland? Nah, Greenland's on nah. their own. I'm like, Dude, come on. We're going to do Greenland what dirty like that? You know what you did, Greenland? Also, <laughs> our pact with New Zealand technically ended in 1986. They know what they did. That's just going to be my answer for all of these. No, uh, you're, you're uh, right. Also, doesn't Netherlands still own Greenland? I don't know. Uh, yeah, Greenland is an autonomous country, but I think it's part of the Kingdom of Denmark. Uh, which really it. sounds like something they did for tax purposes, right? Like we're a country, sure. but we're also Denmark. It just depends on, you know, when the light bill is due, I imagine. So this, this though leads us to something really optimistic, even if it's optimistic, nihilistically, nihilistic. Yeah. yeah exactly. uh, this leads us to something beautiful. We can say, which is that even if, this is an overly ambitious idea, even if it's what corporate America would call a big swing. It is a wonderful idea, a world without war. I don't know what it would take for us human civilization to reach that level of uh, sophistication. But if I have to be completely honest and transparent, I think it would need to be an external threat. Like the biggest chance for global world peace is either a lack of scarcity, a post-scarcity economy, or aliens are real. They're coming for us. Everybody put your own beef on the back burner. We got to we gotta team up for this one. I don't know. What do you guys think? Can world peace happen without aliens? I, I'm going in. I'm going in Star Trek. You I know. know, I know yeah, I mean, yeah. I'd be disappointed if you didn't. I mean, first contact, the movie, like when, you know, the world obtained world peace and became the paradise that it is in modern, quote unquote, Star Trek, (laughs) is when uh, they met the Vulcans. Spoilers right here, guys. After their first warp flight and, you know, they're like, oh, wow, we're not the only like creatures in here. We have to all band together or we're going to get wiped off the face of the earth. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think war is very much like a byproduct you'd really kind of think about it. There's a lot of other things that have to get fixed first before we, you know, stop trying to invade each other's land and kill each other. Yeah. Like, you know, plagues, pandemics. Probably what are they good get for? Get that online. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely nothing. Uh, but also, you know, population control. That's a whole nother conversation there. But this is very interesting and, and very prescient uh, for where we are now geopolitically. And uh, while the the sort of headline for this is that it's like this pact that nobody really remembers anymore. Um, I don't know if we mentioned this, but uh, Kellogg did win the Nobel Peace Prize for his part That's in right. this agreement. Um, and I think it definitely set the tone in many ways. Even if we don't remember this one particularly, its legacy lives on. 
Yeah, absolutely. And well said. And with that, we want to pass the torch to you, fellow Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, of course, as always, for tuning in. Do you think a world without war is possible in our time? Love to hear from you while you're mulling that over. Big, big shout out, as always, to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Big shout out to our own sometimes allies, sometimes nemeses, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister. Oh, man. And shout out to Alex Williams. Speaking of passing, Alex Williams, who composed our theme and who also uh, is Max Williams's brother. Uh, speaking of passing the torch, uh, I was re-gifted a Max Williams uh, gift over the holidays uh, from Alex Williams. You got Wait, Mr. Alex Williams a uh, sous vide uh, cooking uh, machine. Oh, cool. And uh, Alex is not much of a chef, he says. And uh, he knows that I am. And he passed the torch of the sous vide cooker on to me. So for that, Max, I thank you because it's okay. awesome. Uh, he actually had texted me about that, and I gave that to him so long ago, I forgot what a sous vide was. <laughs> I had to look it up. Well, anyone that's interested in precision cooking, uh, look up sous vide. It's a wonderful way sear. of... it's Yeah, you got to do the reverse sear. You sous vide the thing in a hot water bath. This device that used to be like thousands of dollars when the, the technology first kind of was around... It keeps the container of water exactly the right temperature, and you seal your steak or protein or vegetables in a bag, and then it cooks for like a couple hours, and it gets it to the exact right temperature. Um, why would I want meat that was cooked in water, you ask? Well, afterwards, it's cooked perfectly inside, and then you sear it on the outside, and it is uh, the best um, cook you will ever enjoy in your or life. You Big fan. Or you could have a sloppy steak. But uh, Tim Robinson aside, also big, big shout out to Eve's Jeffcoat. Big, big shout out to Christopher Hasiotis. And big shout out to every world leader who managed to pursue diplomacy instead of bloody conflict. We know you're all listening. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High Five! High Five! Casino! Casino! Win at HighFiveCasino.com! High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino! Thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of 1 carat plus and receive a free natural 1 carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.